So we're studying uh, the life of Jesus through this biography. It's called the Gospel of Mark. And we are, uh, the, the passage that was just read this morning uh, is found in the last days of Jesus before he dies. And so it's a pretty uh, charged atmosphere. Uh, if you read the beginning of the biography, Jesus is concerned to show uh, the crowds who he is. That's actually one of the main themes of this biography, which would be a theme of any biography for that matter. And, but he's been a little bit coy. He's been a little bit, he hasn't pressed the issue too much. But now, as he's come into Jerusalem, he's made a few statements leading up to this point that make it clear that it's time to press the issue. He has said three different times leading up to this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and to the Roman officials, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And he said that three times. And he said specifically that the purpose that he's going to do this is so that he might give his life as a ransom. Uh, a ransom is a payment that is made to liberate. And so Jesus is saying, I've come to give my life and to rise again to liberate and set people free, and as we'll see a little bit later, to really set the world free. So not exactly a small claim, right? Okay. So that's what Jesus has said. And so he's entered into Jerusalem and he's declared himself really to be the Son of God and the Messiah. And the authorities that are in charge in that city are like, whoa, you know, easy, bro, hold the phone. No, that's in the Greek. <laughs> okay. They're not so sure. His claims are massive. And if they're true, then it's going to turn their world literally upside down. And they're not quite ready for that for sure. And so this, over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're looking at this, you know, a Q&A with Jesus. Last week, we looked at a question that they asked him, uh, how did you get this authority? And we saw how he answered that. And this week, he, asked, or he is asked a couple of questions. And, you know, in America, we got this statement that says the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. And that's kind of the theme of what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about what happens after death, resurrection. We'll look at that second. And then he looks at the, the response of how... Jesus himself, and then therefore, by extension, followers of Jesus should interact with government. And so we're going to be looking at those questions this morning. So let's dive into the first question. It's in chapter 12, starting in verse number 13. And the group of people that come to him are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Again, just by way of reminder, these Jewish leaders are part of the, the overall governments called the Sanhedrin. But the Sanhedrin is made up of different types of leaders. The Pharisees were, they weren't priests, they, but they were very concerned about God's law, the Old Testament, and how it applied to everyday life. And so the most influential of them would rise to power, and they were part of the Sanhedrin. The Herodians, as you might guess, were devotees of Herod, and so they were very concerned about political issues, and so this question, it makes sense, even though they were strange bedfellows, the Herodians and the Pharisees didn't always get along, but on this particular issue, they wanted to tempt Jesus, they wanted to trick Jesus, and so they get together and they ask a question that has both practical and political implications to Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, before they ask the question, they flatter Jesus, okay? So flattery can be 
um, you know, saying an untrue thing. It's kind of true, but it's untrue to, in a sense, win you over to get you to do something else. And so if someone came to me and said, you know, Mike, you're still a good soccer player. Oh, my wife was the first laugh. I love it. <laughs> That's flattery. It's no longer true. It's no longer true, unfortunately. Okay? But they, maybe they wanted to get something else. You know, my kid, hey, Dad, you're still good, but hey, can I have this money? You know, like that, something like that. Some bait and switch, right? Or you could say something that is actual, you know, absolutely 100% true, but have those underlining motives. To kind of like, so they put their guard down, so to speak. Or to maybe trap them. That's what's going on here. What they say about Jesus actually is 100% true about him. And it's something, again, for me, one of the things that I love as I read the story of Jesus, you know, again and again, I'm compelled by the figure that he is. You know, I, I've said multiple times, like, you know, the... I, you know, the church, I love the church. The people of God are amazing. It's, it's a privilege to be a part of the church for sure. But the, the, the bedrock reason that I'm a Christian is not simply because of the church, although that's a huge influence in my life. It's because of this compelling person of Jesus. And so here's what Jesus' enemies say about him. Teacher, we know that you are true and that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. That's what Jesus' enemies are saying about him. Even though they're flattering, it's still true. You know that, that phrase in there, you're not swayed by appearances. In, in the original, it says that you don't look at their face. I love that idiom. When Jesus is telling people the truth, you know, sometimes there's people that are kind of brash and um, you know, which just at times, unfortunately, could be me eight times. You know, they want to tell you like it is. They're not actually telling you how it is. They're just telling you how they think it is. <laughs> but Jesus speaks the truth. He tells it how it actually is, and he doesn't care whose face he's looking into. He welcomed the children. You know, he could, he could look at their face, tell it like it is. He could, you know, the poor, the kings, it doesn't matter. This is who Jesus is. He tells it like it really is, and it doesn't matter the face he's looking into. That's what his enemies are saying about him. Now, they're saying that in hopes of tripping him up because they say, hey, Jesus, you always tell it like it is, so now tell us like it is about taxes. Should we pay the taxes or not? And this is why this is going to be tricky for Jesus. They feel like they've got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma here. If Jesus says, pay the taxes, at this point in time, remember, he's in Jerusalem during Passover, which is the big Jewish liberation celebration. If there was any time to throw off their Roman oppressors, it was now during Passover. They've hailed him as the Messiah, the son of David, and so if Jesus goes, yeah, just pay the tax, it's like letting the air out of the balloon. Everyone's going to be like, oh, we thought he was going to liberate us. And so if he says pay the tax, he's going to lose all of his quote-unquote momentum, all of his quote-unquote popularity with the crowd. But remember, Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to maintain his popularity. <laughs> he didn't say three times, I'm going to Jerusalem to maintain my popularity. <laughs> 
I'm going to Jerusalem to die and to rise and set the world free. So they think they got him on that. If he says, don't pay the tax, well, now they've got reason to hand him over to the Romans and get him, you know, get him you know, destroyed, put away, undermined, whatever. Now, the temple there, again, if you kind of got to know some of the context, that temple was fairly regularly a hotbed of controversy. Okay, just that would be an understatement, all right? So much so that the Romans built a tower on one of the corners so they could always watch what was going on in the temple. And so if Jesus, this kind of young, upstart rabbi, again, remember, he's 33, so he's viewed as very young, all right? Upstart rabbi was hailed just a couple days earlier as the son of David, throngs of people following, saying that he's the king, and then he goes, don't pay Caesar, Rome's going to be there in a heartbeat. And that's what they want. So they're like, well, if he says pay the tax, the people aren't going to like him. If he says don't pay the tax, the Romans aren't going to like him. We got him. That was the whole point. They're going to try to trick him. And Jesus, you always tell us like it is. He always tells it like it is straightforward when people aren't trying to trick him. And here, you're going to see the wisdom of Jesus, and it's brilliant. And you actually see the comment at the end. By the time Jesus is done with a very short, quip answer, everybody, the crowds and the people originally asking the question, marvel. So what does Jesus say? <laughs> the first thing that Jesus does, he doesn't have to do, by the way, to answer the question. He says, give me a denarius. Someone give me a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage at that time. So, you know, I don't know what you all make, but I don't know. Let's say it's a hundred, a hundred, all right? <laughs> it's a pretty significant amount of money. That Jesus, you know, uh, Jesus was digital only. He didn't, he didn't carry cash. No, okay. <laughs> he, was, he was Apple Pay only. So he says, give me a denarius. I actually have a picture of one here. You can see it. This is what Jesus would have called for. It's a, called a Tiberian denarius. The front side of it is the, the wreath-looking thing with a guy, and that on the other side is a woman, a priestess. You can actually buy one of these if you want. They're on eBay right now. You can go on your phone right now, about 1600 bucks. all right? Put that in the offering, no good. Total joke, that's a total joke. We wouldn't even know what to do with it. So here, this is what it would have been. So now again, they say, should we pay the tax or not? And Jesus says, bring me a denarius. And what that denarius says is on the bottom here, the front side says, Tiberius Caesar, August, son of the divine Augustus. And so Jesus says, bring, you know, bring me the denarius. And he says, whose image is on it? Now, if you're a Jewish person, and the word image, which here in Greek it's icon, is used, that's an important word to you. The second commandment says you shall have no graven So here they are in the temple during Passover week, and Jesus' opponents produce a graven image. They were trying to wrong-foot him. He ended up wrong-footing them. What's that? Is that like jujitsu? Like, is it like using their strength against them? Yeah, okay, I got a couple nods. I was right. 
So now all of a sudden, they're kind of on the defensive. Everyone would have been like, well, why are these guys carrying that? In fact, the Jewish people, to avoid using this, made their own copper coins. And so a lot of them wouldn't even use this. Especially, it's a graven image where the person on the front of it claims to be the divine son of God. Don't talk about idolatry. What are they doing with those coins? And so he, he puts them on the defensive almost immediately. And he said, why do you put me to the test? Whose likeness? And he it calls attention to the inscription. Whose inscription is on it? So he wrong-foots them. And then they answer him, it's Caesar's likeness. And so with incredible conciseness, Jesus says, so then render to Caesar, or the, I think better translation is, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And so what, what Jesus does there is, in one sense, he tells them to pay the tax. So he avoids the Roman problem, but he also says, give the things to gods that are gods. There's something bigger and grander going on, so he avoids you know, letting the air out of the balloon from the people as well. So they don't exactly know what to do with his response. That's the wisdom of Jesus. Now, when he says give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's literally like, hey, if somebody lost something, just look, if there's a name on it, go find the name. Oh, that's Caesar's. Give it back to him. It's his money. He printed it. His name is on it. Give it back to him. You use the Roman roads. You use the Roman economy. You use the Roman civil magistrate. Those are all things they provide. And so taxation is it's equitable. It's right. And so this kind of lays a foundation for Christian interaction with the government where Christians, in following Jesus and his teaching here, it's not inherently wrong for Christians to engage in civic life. And by the way, that's not just in America. I know we're in America right now, but this has been standing for 2,000 years wherever Christianity has gone. God has instituted government, and it's good and right and okay for Christians to engage in civic life. But he doesn't just stop there. Then he says, and give to God the things that are God's. Now what is that? It might be good and right and appropriate for the government to tax you based on some of the benefits that they provide you. But what has God done for you? And so therefore, what belongs to him? What should you give to him? Next week, we're going to look at the answer to that question even more fully. They asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, here's the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is saying is actually far more, in a sense, radical than like, hey, we're going to overthrow this and put in a new government. He's saying, what I'm doing, what, what belongs to God is a world where everybody loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. In fact, you could put these things together this way. As followers of Jesus, we will interact with our civic duties appropriately and rightly, most effectively, when we do the second one first. When we truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly love our neighbor as ourselves, then we will have the wisdom and strength and discernment to engage the civic affairs around us 
properly. So here's, what I, here's two things, or three things I would say just to kind of put a bow on this one and we'll move to the next question. What do we learn here? As followers of Jesus, we would say, number one, there is no inherent conflict between human government and following Jesus. Now, sometimes, and in some political situations, you know, civil disobedience can be a thing. And they, the early followers of Jesus said it's better to obey God than men when there's a direct contradiction. But there's no inherent wrongdoing in engaging the government when we follow Jesus. And number two, we would say what one owes God transcends, is above, is more important than what one owes Caesar. And so all of my interactions with Caesar are governed by my primary interaction and allegiance and commitment to Jesus. Those two things we can say with rock-solid assurance. The third thing I would say is there's a lot of room as four followers of Jesus to engage in those civic affairs with varying level of emphases. Okay? So, you know, there's can be some of this stuff going, well, you're too political or you're not political enough in, in the household of God. And I'm just like, maybe there's a place for that, although I don't know if social media is the place for it. But we should recognize that varying levels of interaction with the civil government is, there's freedom in that in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God. Let me give you an example so that it's not just this abstract thought. The you know, the African slave trade, you know, was a horrendous blight on all of humanity. You can just say it that way. It's that big and that bad. I was just having a conversation with some fellows about this uh, earlier this week. But one of the, not the only, but one of the, um, the, the men that God used in Britain to bring about the end of that African slave trade was a guy named William Wilberforce. Okay? He worked in the British government for 40 years to see that abolished. And finally it was. When he was a young man, he was debating whether or not he should become uh, a preacher or go into politics. <laughs> that was never a debate that I had. Okay. <laughs> and he chose to go in the political sphere. If some knucklehead went, well, you're being too political. Oh my, go punch that guy, right? Aren't you all glad that William Wilberforce dedicated himself as a follower of Jesus to the abolition of the African slave trade? Oh, you should say amen louder than that. I don't care what you believe. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to force amen. That's rude. Uh, <laughs> I think you should be pretty excited about it. <laughs> On the flip side, isn't it to our shame in the American church that it took us so long to get political enough to stand up to it. So all I'm saying is, number one, it's not inherently wrong in and of itself. Number two, our allegiance to God must be the first and foremost. And number three, there's a lot of freedom in there to explore what does it mean for me to give to Caesar or to Caesar and to God's what is God's. You know, you got to work that out. For me, I know, you know my calling right here as uh, one of the pastors here and one of the guys responsible primarily for preaching, I know what my main message is week in and week out. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. 
He did that for us. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. That's what I do. And this is not a, part, this is not a place for partisanship in here. But in your callings and in your spheres, the Lord may lead you in different degrees and different emphases. And we should be open-hearted toward one another and encouraging one another to work that out with wisdom and truth. And again, I would say that the best way to safeguard that is to make sure we really are loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. That will give us the wisdom and power we need to discern how to engage Caesar. All right, number two. The second question is by a different group. These guys are called the Sadducees. And they're the priestly class. These guys are the guys that really run the temple. And their question isn't so much uh, practical, like taxes or political. It's, it's more theological in nature. And they're trying basically to embarrass Jesus with what's known as an ad absurdum argument. Meaning, if you say you believe in the resurrection, I'm going to give you a case study that's going to make you look absurd and ridiculous. That's what this is. And so they, there's this, there was a, you know, which this will be foreign to us because we have completely different economic and inheritance laws in the United States. But in Judaism, the inheritance went through the sons. And so if a man died with no son, then his inheritance, his wealth, his family name was all in jeopardy. And so in order to protect that and guard that, then a close relative would raise up an heir so that that man's legacy and inheritance would remain. All right? So again, seems strange to us, completely normal in the ancient world. And so these guys go, hey, Jesus, you say you believe in the resurrection, which, by the way, we know that they know this because, I've repeated this twice and here's the third time, Jesus on his way into Jerusalem said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again three times. They know it. They know he's claiming resurrection. They know he believes in it. In fact, when Jesus is killed, in Matthew's account, they say, hey, put a big stone over it and guard it with Roman soldiers because this deceiver said he would rise from the dead. So his opponents clearly knew he believed in resurrection, and so they're going to try to make him look silly and ridiculous, and so they throw this case study at him. Now, Jesus is normally uh, very uh, respectful and compassionate in his interactions with folk. You can, again, read it. You can see women, children, men, very respectful and compassionate. When he senses that folk are like deviant and trying to trick him like they are here, <laughs> like the rest of us, his fuse is a little shorter. So he, resp I mean, his response here is, you know, I probably like it. It probably says more. That I, the fact that I like it so much probably reveals more about me than Jesus. <laughs> and he just says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> all right. He doesn't even give the argument first. He just, boom, you're already wrong. And then when he finishes, <laughs> he says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So this is like a wrong, like your whole question is a wrong sandwich. <laughs> And in the middle, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. And so he gives two reasons why they're wrong about not believing in the resurrection. He says, number one, you don't know the scriptures, which again, you know, that is in a kind of, not kind, that's an insult. These are the priests. 
You know, that would be like me going to my father who had a you know, successful career as a project manager in the electrical field and be like, Dad, you really don't know about electricity. <laughs> no, he would never do that. Like, what? So he says to the priest, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. What a shame that is. When the people who are supposed to be leading and representing the people of God, when those people don't have any experience or true knowledge or appreciation of God's power. It's just empty religion. So, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. And, then he, and so he actually addresses the power of God one first. And he addresses the whole, you know, the you know, seven brides for seven brothers thing here. So if you're familiar with that movie at all, I have seen it, but none of you apparently haven't. Don't worry about it. I mean, that poor lady, right? I mean, I mean that, that, that lady went through it. Seven brothers, good night. <laughs> so he says, in the resurrection, in this new world, marriage is not a thing. Which is like pretty, I mean, that's big news, obviously. That's like, wow, okay, that, that's going to change the way we view and interact with the world for sure, yes. But it's connected to the power of God. In this new world that Jesus is bringing, he's going to talk about the resurrection in a second, they don't marry given a marriage. The need for procreation is no longer there. That's one of the functions of marriage. The other function of marriage that is more, pri uh, more prime in like our Western idea is the idea of companionship and relationship. That is no longer there either according to the power of God. You see, the scriptures teach us that marriage is a shadow. It's like a little uh, witness to what's coming. Marriage is a, is a picture of Christ's relationship to his people. It's, a, it's covenantal, it's intimate, it's, it's endures, it's steadfast and close. All of those beautiful, noble ideas are in marriage, and all of that points to the relationship with God and his people. And so in the new heavens and new earth, that relationship between God and his people is going to be so close and so personal that the thought of needing to be married will never even be there anymore. That's the power of God. The presence of God. And so he's just like, you guys don't even know what the next world is like. So before you, you know, you know bring this ridiculous argument to me, you, should, you, know, you shouldn't say that. You should keep your mouth closed. And then he goes in verse 26. And it's for the issue of being raised from the dead. Let me, he's like, let me talk to that too before I leave. And he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? Which again is a little insulting. You know, experts in their field, haven't you read the most basic document in the passage about the bush? Now, this is interesting. The reason why Jesus quotes here and not somewhere else is very important. You see, the Sadducees received and believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. It's called the Law, the Pentateuch, the Torah. That's all the words for it. That's what they believed in. All the rest of the Old Testament was like commentary that was trustworthy or not trustworthy on the first five books. So if, if you were Jesus and someone said, hey, prove that there, there's a resurrection from the scriptures, you'd go to Daniel 12, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, you should go to Daniel 12. 
where it talks about the resurrection. Or you'd go to Isaiah 26, another place that talks about the resurrection. Or you'd go to Job 16, I think it is. Or Psalm 16, excuse me. You'd go to these various places to prove the resurrection, but the Sadducees would be like, no, no, not accepted, not the law, not the law, not Moses. And so what Jesus does is he proves it from the passage of Scripture that they accept. Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God is uh, calling Moses so that he can rescue his people from slavery and set them free. Huh? That reminds me of what Jesus is doing, but that's for another time. <laughs> and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus, in a sense, looks right at those Sadducees and says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's one of the fundamental statements in Judaism, that he is the one true and living God. And he doesn't make promises to dead people. So Jesus argues from the promises and the character of God, from the law, that the resurrection is real. And so he says, you are quite wrong. So now let me finish with three things about the resurrection that I think are important for us to take from this. Number one, the resurrection is personal. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Christianity is its almost too good to be true. It's too hard to believe. The fact that individual people, amongst the masses of people that are out there, are raised back to life again and are recognizable. <laughs> 21st century people are not the only ones who have a hard time believing that. First century Jewish people were like, no way. That's what Jesus is claiming. He's not using Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as symbols of faith. He's going, no, those dudes. <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those individuals are literally going to be raised from the dead. So yeah. I know, I am so aware how foreign that can feel. I mean, I, you know, I've lost family members. It doesn't feel like every day like I'm going to see them again. But that's what Jesus is promising. So that's a big deal. That's what Jesus is offering. We're going to see here, you know, the Sadducees had a story about how the world was going to go, and Jesus is saying, no, I've got a better story, and I think this is one of the reasons that makes it better. Individual people, men and women, are raised from the dead. There's personal implications to the resurrection. Secondly, there's cosmic, worldwide implications to the resurrection. You see, the promises that God made to those individual people are cosmic in their scope. He said to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, he promised. He also promised Abraham a land. And as the promises grew and developed over the centuries, we see that the land becomes the whole world itself and that the people that he's going to bless is worldwide. And so the scope of the resurrection is, is cosmic. It's worldwide. And then thirdly, 
all of those promises, the personal and cosmic implications of the resurrection, center on Jesus. Remember? (laughs) That's why he's in the temple in the first place. I'm going to Jerusalem to die and then to rise again. And so, you know, we put a fair bit of planning into these gatherings. (laughs) I hope you can tell. (laughs) But Chase and I did not actually have a conversation this morning. And the passage of scripture that I'm going to show you is the exact passage that he read this morning. Now that happened at the nine o'clock too, in case you're wondering, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I mean, that's literally like, even more so, a 52 deck of cards, me and Chase pulling the exact same card. So I just think this is a word, you know, take it how you will. I think Jesus wanted you to hear this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man came the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. So here he goes. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So he's going, here's the first creation. Adam, the head of the race, plunges us into sin and death. Jesus comes as the second Adam. And he, just like Adam started a new world, Jesus now is starting this whole new world. So when Jesus is talking with these Sadducees, he's saying, hey, this is what I've come to do. I've come to make the resurrection real, personal, and cosmic. But each in its own order. Christ is first. Then those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority. So he's saying Jesus is coming and he's going to make a new world where all of the threats, the rules, authorities, and powers that would bring the world down are going to be rid And Christ himself is going to rule as king. (laughs) This is why Christianity has got an edge to it. (laughs) Right? Okay, This this is the high octane stuff right here. This is the deal. This is what Jesus came to do. And so I think, as I said a few moments ago, you've got like a decision, you know, to kind of like process. There was a competing narrative in Jesus' day by these Sadducees that the good life and the life worth giving all of yourself to had no hope of a resurrection. And there is a narrative like that rampant in our world today. You live, you eat, you die, there's nothing after that. I submit that that's not as good of a story as Jesus's. In this other story, you were not born for any particular reason. You just happen to be on a small blue planet floating in the outer space. You make up your own meaning and significance, which some people may acknowledge, some people may not, but it doesn't really matter because after 70, 80 years, you're going to die, and within a generation or two, people are going to forget about you, and your, your, your existence was meaningless. It's hard to avoid that narrative. If there's no resurrection, you've got to grapple with meaning, purpose, what freedom actually is. Jesus is saying, I've got a better narrative. You're part of a sinful human race, absolutely. Me too. But you're like a sheep that's scattered. And Jesus says, I've come like the good shepherd. I'm trying to find people and bring them back. And in fact, I'm going to absorb all the sin and evil and wickedness onto myself on the tree. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. But after I do that, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to be able to forgive people of their sins and give them eternal life forever. And one day I will come and make all things new. That's the story. 
And so it's a, it's a faith commitment. Am I going to embrace this story or am I going to embrace that story? And I fear a lot of us, myself included, we try to straddle it. And so I would say, as Jesus said in the first question, yes, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Live your life here in a good and God-honoring way. But remember, to give the things of God the things that are God. Give him all of your heart. Give him all of your soul. Give him all of your trust. I'm going to pray in a minute. We're going to sing a song to close. It's actually a reworking of the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of the church's most ancient creed that delineates the fact that we believe this story about Jesus. And so I pray that that will be meaningful to you as we close.